HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bonnie knows when you plant something, it keeps on giving. Growing from friend to neighbor to community. Generations of gardeners have trusted Bonnie for fresh, healthy vegetable and herb plants. Rely on Bonnie for quality plants, help, and support. Bonnie, gardening with you since 1918. BonniePlants.com You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit, member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. Today, we're coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza. It's a lovely day here in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn, and today we're going to be tackling some big stuff um, on making the deserts, rethinking climate change, bringing back biodiversity, and restoring nutrients to our food. Um, We are on the line with Judith Schwartz, author of Cows Saving the Planet. Uh, Judith, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. So that is a pretty pr- provocative and interesting title, Cows Save the Planet. And before we kind of tuck into the book, I wanted to get a little bit of a sense of, um, you know, your background and, and how you came to write on this topic. Well, I came to it kind of from a roundabout way. I, I'm a journalist, and I've been writing about new economics, which is looking at economics as something, you know, that should be serving people and the planet as opposed to how it often is now, which is that people on the planet are in service, are looked upon as in service of the economy. So that led me to environmental economics, and I found that the connections were kind of interesting because of the way that our institutions are set up, and then that led me to soil. I don't know if that makes any sense, but in the book I do, I do make the connections, and the main thing was that 
that in, in my exploration of um, environmental economics, I learned that, that agricultural practices had put much of the CO2 into the atmosphere, and we don't hear about that. And the reason that, one reason that that's so important, I mean, all we hear about is fossil fuels. The reason that that's so important is that when you think, when we keep hearing about fossil fuels and the, the concentrations of CO2 going up, 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 we're just helpless because none of us as individuals or co- even collectively at this point seems like we can stop that. However, we can bring carbon back into the soil and therefore have an impact that way. So that's what got me really, really excited. So you, your book is kind of an exploration of soil, but also an exploration of cattle. And, and why is it that, uh, you know, cows were the animal you chose as opposed to, uh, you know, other ruminants or other livestock? Oh, um, I'm sorry, I missed that. Cows as opposed to other livestock? Because all, all domestic um, grass-eating plants can be managed in this manner. Um, for example, in okay, so so the the what going back to the title, mm-hmm. it's a, the title "Cows Save the Planet." It's a nod to holistic planned grazing, which is a land management approach that uses employs livestock as tools for large scale land restoration. And it comes from the work of Alan Savory, whose work actually is finally getting noticed and and even embraced. He recently gave a TED Talk that's been viewed well over a million times and sparked a lot of interests and and questions, etc. So basically, he observed as a young wildlife ranger in Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia, that when they removed animals from the land when they tried to preserve land for national parks and they they pushed all the animals aside in in the hopes that then the land would revive because the land was deteriorating the land got worse so it occurred to him that the land needed the animals in the same way that the animals needed the land so then he worked on this, and he and many other people working with him, and found that, indeed, they could manage animals, herbivores, in a way that mimicked the behavior of such animals in the wild, of their, of their wilder counterparts. And I can go on and explain how this works or give you a chance. I just want to make sure that... I'm not going too fast. No, no, that was actually my next question is kind of break it down for us. Um, Essentially, you know, because it is a management issue, it's not enough just to put a herd of cows out onto a piece of pasture and, you know, things magically happen there. You know, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And maybe you can kind of take us through um, some of those management practices, but then also kind of what physically is happening. um, What is that exchange between the land and the uh, animals? Okay. First of all, the management practice is that the animals are, and again, it could be cattle, it could be sheep, it could be goats. And in terms of sheep, I've heard that in South America, there are lands where people use this and you can watch 50,000 sheep moving as one kind of sweep, you know, a big, you know, woolen sweep of, of, over the landscape. And 
they need to be moved in specific ways so so that land gets grazed intensely for short periods of time. So the animals are always moving. And that reflected how animals moved in the past because there were natural predators. And the way that herbivores protect themselves is that when there's a predator, and in this country it could have been the wolves, in Africa it would have been lions or cheetah. So the... the the antelope or whatever, they, or the water buffalo, they would bunch up and then move quickly. So, so now I'll move to where, how this acts upon the land. So when the animals would graze down, but not to kill the plants or graze too far, but at a period of time that they, they expose the growth points of the plants to sunlight, their hooves press seeds in so that you get greater biodiversity so that different seeds, you know, a variety of seeds are in contact with the soil. They also are pressing in the, de- the decaying plants, the dead grasses from previous seasons, and that builds hummus, that builds soiled organic matter. They're urinating, they're dunging, they're, they're trampling so that aerates the soil. So all these things are happening. So we often hear that cattle have a bad impact on land. Well, that can be true because land can be overgrazed, but land can also be undergrazed, and that was a key insight. So, I mean, I, I, if I'm, you're looking at um, kind of maintaining a pasture or a parcel of land or restoring uh, a parcel of land, you know, using animals or livestock is, is one tool. Why is it, do you think, that that's not kind of where people's minds go to? I mean, what are, like, alternative ways or methods that that have maybe been more traditionally employed that we would be moving away from if we were to kind of follow this path of using livestock to restore land? Um Well, I think in terms of the ranching communities, a lot of people are embracing this, but I think that, I think that ideas and the way, first of all, in every, every discipline and practice, um, all across the map, that the notion of doing things as they've always been done is very, very strong, and so edging anyone away from that is, is very hard to do. is 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 that what you were you were well, asking I, well i guess i mean it it seems like you know if if we're if this kind of pro- process of land maintenance is building a building on like a, a natural occurrence i'm i'm wondering like what what happened to move us away from from uh using land like that? I mean, was there an introduction of some other management technique that we are reflecting back on that was a failed technique and now it's like, you know, creating an opportunity for, you know, revisiting this uh, older method or does Um, that make sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure because I don't know the whole history of how livestock have been used because, I mean, there are a lot of lands where in North Africa, et cetera, where land has not, people have been uh, keeping livestock, maybe a few head of cattle or whatever, and the land has not been doing very well. But in the past, 
there was always new land for people to move to, whereas today we're kind of, you know, we're kind of maxing out because a lot of the land that had been appropriate for livestock is desertifying. Now, this practice can unmake the desert, can reverse desertification. And it does that because desertification is the loss of, of soil function, basically, um, on, on land. What happens is that, let's say, land is overgrazed, so the plants aren't healthy, then, it, then you get more um, bare soil, and with more bare soil, uh, it's the carbon oxidizes, you, so you lose carbon, you, you, you lose the capacity to hold moisture, and as you lose the capacity to hold moisture, you're also losing the, the biological life in the soil, which means less, pl- fewer plants can survive, etc. So it's a vicious cycle. So essentially the cattle or sheep or goats are, they function as biological accelerators. They, they, they move this practice forward so that so that the nutrient cycle the water cycle the carbon cycle are all um continuing without you know being thrown out of whack got it um so we are going to move we're going to take just a a quick break and when we come back we're going to continue this conversation on soil and the role of livestock in um, healing the soil You're listening to Bang Bang Sun by Iggy Dean on the Heritage Radio Network.org. something it keeps on giving growing from friend to neighbor to community generations of gardeners have trusted bonnie for fresh healthy vegetable and herb plants rely on bonnie for quality plants help and support bonnie gardening with you since 1918 bonnieplants.com all right, we are back. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we're on the line with Judith Schwartz, author of Cows Save the Planet, and we're talking about soil. So some of the other techniques that come up in the book, you talk about uh, no-tillage, uh, deep-rooted perennial grasses, cro- cover crops, mulching, 
um, in, in addition to the grazing of animals. And I'm hoping maybe we can talk through a couple of, of those techniques, in particular the, the deep-rooted perennial grasses. I, you know, it's interesting looking at um, Wes Jackson and the work of the Land Institute and you know, putting together a 50-year farm bill and perennials playing a very large role in um, restoring the, the grasslands throughout the Midwest. And I'm curious, in, in your work, um, where that type of management fits in with the grazing? How do the two kind of work in tandem, or are they like, uh, is one an alternative to the other? I really don't know how they would work in tandem. I'm, I'm really not sure, but it's worth saying that 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 the the grazing we're, that's most appropriate for natural gla- grasslands, and because we're losing many of those gra- those grasslands, they're not in they're not in in good vibrant health. Um, one exciting thing about the kind about focusing on perennial grasses is that another I guess going back to the climate thing, the f- um, concern the flip side of rising CO two in the atmosphere is the loss of soil carbon uh, in the ground, which is also soil loss. Um, we're losing topsoil at an incredible rate. Um, one person that I talked to said that, for every, at least in Australia, for every pound of grain produced, seven pound, or, seven, or a ton of grain produced, seven tons of topsoil is lost. That's not a very good ratio. So this, the thing to keep in mind is that Storing carbon in the, bringing CO2 down into, into the soil and building so, topsoil are basically the same process. So grasses, deep-rooted grasses, are, have an incredible potential because they draw carbon down deep into the soil profile. So you can really basically turn subsoil to topsoil um, in, in texture and function at at deeper levels. And this, the same scientist that I, that I referenced, her name is Christine Jones, and she's in Australia, is that she says that when soil is looked at and carbon is measured in the soil, usually it only goes down about 15 centimeters, but she talks about the dynamic activities going on way down at root level. So um, the carbon, she terms it liquid, she calls it the liquid carbon pathway. So carbon is going down into those deep roots. It's stimulating a lot of activity of the microorganisms, and that is breaking down matter, and so that's building topsoil, that's, store, that's building carbon, etc. So, yeah, so I, I think that's, um, that's where the, the work on on native grasses is, is, is very exciting. From. So if, if we back up a little bit for, and, and just try to kind of um, break this down for folks who may not be super familiar with kind of how soils can be different from one another, what are the defining characteristics of topsoil? I mean, what does topsoil do or, or produce that makes it such an important um, thing to preserve? Topsoil, it's... It, well, when it functions, it has it's aerated, you know, so that so that that water and um, and air and nutrients can can move through it. There's very very rich biological life in the soil. I mean, 
you know, until I started exploring this, I'm embarrassed to say that I, I considered soil basically an inert thing. Now when I think of soil, it's almost as a verb, as like, you know, action, movement, because it is living. Healthy, one teaspoon of healthy topsoil has about six billion organisms in it. Um, Fungi, microbes, bacteria, um, all kinds of little, I mean, little doesn't even, you know, quite, cut it, <laughs> little little things in, in there. And at root level, Christine Jones says that there could even be many times that number of, of things. But, but most of the, there's a lot of biological activity on the top layer, and that's where plants get rooted, and just, that's where just a lot of, that's where our, our crops um, are nurtured. Kind of in the absence of, you know, without topsoil, without that kind of nutrient dense and like appropriately, uh, appropriately like physically dense, I think, environment, things basically just don't grow. Right. Not only that, but water is lost. The loss of topsoil means that, that, well, that, okay, you want rich, you want carbon rich topsoil because that holds water. Soil carbon, soil organic matter, and which is um, 58% carbon, holds many times its weight in water. So when that gets washed away and you've got kind of bare, you know, um, rock or whatever, you, you're not holding water and you're getting erosion, gullies, you're getting all these things. But, but the holding of water is really, really crucial because in the, Alan Savory, you know, who's, who's the fellow that I that, um, came up or developed holistic management, he talks about how all floods are man-made and that every flood begins with drops of water hitting dry earth. And I just think that's so important to think about because we feel so helpless. Just when, when, there, when floods happen, just, oh my gosh, all this rain came from the sky and we couldn't do anything about it. But by improving the soil, we can, we can you know, minimize those, those kinds of very traumatic to land and people events. Now, what as far as a timeline? I mean, you know, you you mentioned that statistic about um, topsoil loss in Australia. Um, re- with regards to regeneration, you know, if I lose topsoil, can well, what is my timeline for replacing that or or restoring that? You know, if you're if you're basically putting out, you know, a one to seven ratio of of loss, it seems at some point there's going to be no more topsoil. Right. That's a really, really good question, and many people have raised the notion, have we reached peak soil in a parallel to peak oil and peak many other things? Now, when people talk about the building of soil, the number that's often thrown around is 500 years, 500 years to build an inch of topsoil. And that's, again, that leaves one feeling rather hopeless. Oh, my goodness, we're losing all this soil, and we kind of have to wait until, uh, until all that rock weathers. But 
one person who, I, I, there's a quote in the book I took from someone named P.A. Yeomans, who invented the key line plow, which is another really important tool in kind of changing subsoil to topsoil. It, it goes down very deep and stirs it up and aerates the soil, etc. He, he said that soil can be made from two processes. One is the process of aging, and one is the process of living. So by bringing carbon into the soil in a very concerted way, a deep way, people and using grasses, using tools like the key line plow, people have built eight inches or more in a season. Wow. So, I mean, that's... I guess the, like a that a season versus five hundred years. I mean, you're giving me quite a bit of hope there. Um, I'm curious because you have drawn upon the work of folks um, from different parts of the globe. If you noticed in your research that the kind of uh, peril of soil was more intense in different parts of the world than in others. And if you could give us some sense of, uh, you know, where the U.S. Uh, stands in its, you know, soil management as compared to other parts of the world, or if there's particular places that are, you know, doing it really well or conversely doing it really poorly. Well, Australia is kind of the poster child for, for soil loss. And one problem is that it is basically a very dry, naturally dry environment. And here's the thing, is that maybe 150 years ago, 200 years ago, people came from Europe, and they brought techniques. They, they found some very rich soil because it had, hadn't been worked. And they brought techniques from Europe which were appropriate for a completely different type of climate and land. So that that's a big story of, of how Australia is in its the situation it's in. And there are people doing incredibly wonderful work in Australia. And in fact that's the one country where the the term soil carbon has actually been discussed a great deal in, in the public arena. Um, where the US fits in is that in terms of desert, it's, it's a mix. We have so many different climates here. Now, because we, up here in New England, we live in a very moist climate, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily doing everything better because we're not, the land isn't desertifying. It means that when you have a moist environment, you can get away with bad practices a lot longer because the rains will come in a fairly steady rate across the year. Uh, the southwest of the U.S. is desertifying pretty rapidly. And I'm also really concerned because of a lot of, in, in, in the large farms in the Midwest and the, the Great Plains, that those conditions are just that the land isn't doing so well because of the way that we're, we're practicing agriculture. And the, the droughts and floods that we're getting there, um, I would venture are a reflection of that. So, you know, can you give us some tools, you know, as an individual uh, food producer or in, in the aggregate looking from a policy perspective, you know, what are steps that we can take um, at both of those levels to kind of work back from some of the damage that's been done to our soil? I think that the main thing is, well, for... 
I, I'm a, a writer. My goal, I'm, I'm reaching out to readers to, to have them go through the process of learning that I have, which I found so exciting and actually has brought a lo- me a, lo- a, a sense of great optimism because so much of this is possible. So I think that the more that, that people, the public, understand about the cycles and, and the, like the biological cycles that we're dealing with as opposed to looking at things in a linear fashion, I think that's, that's better because um, as individuals then we'll start making better choices in terms of how we grow food, how we buy food, how we um, engage with activist opportunities, different movements like the transition movement has come out of um, permac- an understanding of permaculture, and there are great opportunities there. Um, as investors, uh, there are a lot of opportunities for um, people that are try- doing um, triple bottom line type Projects, for example, there is a, uh, a company called Grasslands um, LLC that is using they're buying land in the northern Great Plains to to um, to um, it's a custom grazing operation so that they're feeding cattle and they're also um, applying holistic management in the service of restoring that that land and the slow money movement also has opportunities for investment. And absolutely, we need to be engaged with our representatives because many of the policies, agricultural policies, economic policies, land use policies, are not done, are, are not, do not have this, an understanding of how land functions, um, informing them. So I, I just think to raise our voices because Economically, it makes so much sense. When you can restore land, you don't have to clean up after, in the, at the, the same degree, against flooding and um, just different kinds of problems that you get when land is no longer functioning well. That's kind of interesting to you know look at uh, floods or other natural disasters and kind of tracing it back to, you know, where, where are we employing resources and what is the role that soil conservation can play? Um, well, Judith, thank you so much for joining us today and kind of unpacking some of the topics that you cover, um, in your book for folks who kind of want to continue this conversation or learn a little bit more about the research. Um, definitely check out cows save the planet available wherever fine books are sold. And Judith, thanks again for joining us. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. It is May, which means it is membership month here at the Heritage Radio Network. We hope if you like what you hear that you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member today. Visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Click that donate tab and sign up for Radio You Can Believe In. Thanks so much for tuning in and stay uh, tuned in. Yeah. Don't ever turn the computer off. Just always stay tuned in. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Grand Way Market Update. We are on the line with Liz Carolla of New York City's Green Markets. Liz, where are we heading today? Hey, Aaron. Yeah, so I know Jean talked about our Tribeca market last week. So I'm going to stay on the west side and head north a little bit to 66th and Columbus, um, our market that's at Tucker Square directly across the street from Lincoln Center. Uh, this is one of the few markets we have that's open on multiple days during the week, so farmers and shoppers can really range depending on if you visit on a Thursday or a Saturday. But either way, there's a great variety of product, and the market hosts some particularly special growers as well as food scrap collections on Saturdays. Um, Tucker Square is in the middle of a string of green markets on the west side, right between our 57th Street and 79th Street markets. So our on-site staff see a lot of the same customers shopping at all of those markets depending on the day of the week. Um, I really like thinking about longtime customers knowing three or four markets really well, visiting them based on the producer they want to buy from that week. So we see a lot of that at Tucker. Awesome. Well, speaking of, you know, visiting special folks, well, who are the farmers? What are the products we can look for at this market? Yeah, a great range of delicious farm food at this market, staples, corn and greens to Mexican specialties like papalo and epizote, also plants, flowers, and herbs, Long Island seafood, grass-fed beef, duck and duck charcuterie, eggs, maple and sorghum syrup, and baked goods. But today I want to highlight Bobo Link Dairy and Bakehouse. Um, Bobo Link is operated by Jonathan and Nina White. They have 185 acres in Milford, New Jersey. They practically have a cult following for their incredible array of, uh, sorry, array of artisanal cheeses, including their Bottolino, which they've dubbed the Brie of Barbarossa. I love saying that. <laughs> and their famous Jean-Louis, a cheese they named in memory of Jean-Louis Paladin, a chef who encouraged food artisans to aim for bolder, earthier flavors which you'll find a lot of in Bobo Link's cheeses. Also, they have a heavenly baked goods array, including roasted garlic, duck fat ciabatta, cranberry walnut loaf, a medieval rye levain. It's easy to become the most popular per- person at the Green Market office if you show up with some Bobo Link baked goods to share. Um, <laughs> very popular. I saw Jonathan speak on a panel a few years ago, and he told a funny anecdote about purchasing his first herd. He said that years ago, all of his friends invested in the stock market, and instead of doing that, he invested in some cows, and when everyone watched Watch their stock plummet. His was busy breeding. And um, I'm sorry, but I can't pass up a good farmer pun, so I had to share that one. (laughs) (laughs) Jonathan and Nina invite visitors to their farm, and they have a really informative newsletter depending on when their cheeses come out throughout the season. They let people know so they can line up early. Um, And all that info is available on their aptly named website, cowsoutside.com. (laughs) <laughs> awesome. Well, so after we've feasted on the uh, delicious uh, Boba Link cheeses and breads, um, what else do you recommend in the neighborhood? Um, the market's one block either way from Lincoln Center, Juilliard buildings to Central Park. So those provide endless entertainment, fun things to do. And if you're hungry, markety restaurants nearby include Nick and Tony's Cafe for delicious wood-fired pizzas, paninis, market-inspired entrees. And, of course, Telepans is right around the corner. Bill Telepans is a long supporter of the market and also a very active advocate for improving school food in New York City. So we like to give him the same love he gives Green Market. 
Yeah, Bill's an amazing guy. So speaking of other amazing things and happenings, I mean, you know, it's a busy week as always. Um, anything we should keep our calendars clear for in the events world? Well, first things first, strawberries are in. They showed up this week, so I know people will be very happy to know that and get to the market. Um, I love seeing those beauties grace the farmer's tables. So um, there's that. And then also we're in the middle of training our new market managers, so pretty soon customers will get to meet all of our new staff who will be running our markets for the season. Um, they're a pretty group, great group so far, so I wanted to give them a shout-out. Um, this Sunday our Windsor Terrace Market opens in Brooklyn, and then right around the corner on June 1st we're opening Bay Ridge and Sunnyside and Socrates, both of those in Queens. So um, very excited about markets opening for the season, and then there will just be a rush after June 1st, opening the rest of them over the course of that next month. Um, we're celebrating Sustainable Seafood Week this week, and this Saturday we're going to have a fish fillet demonstration with Phil Carlin of PE and DD, and that will be happening at the Union Square Info 10 at noon. So if you don't know how to fillet a fish, Phil can show you. He's also an incredible personality and very funny and outgoing, so it's worth going to see him do that. And then, of course, next Wednesday we've been promoting a couple weeks now. We're doing our Educated Eater Series, International Cuisine with Local Ingredients. Um, we were just looking at tickets. There's probably about 10 left, so if anyone's interested, go ahead and reserve your spot now. And I think that's it. Probably a lot more stuff coming up in June. Sounds wonderful. Sounds like plenty to keep us busy, and I'm definitely excited to hear strawberries are back. No better reason to get up early. Uh, I agree. <laughs> Liz, thanks so much for taking some time out to give us the update. Uh, for folks who want to find out more about what's happening at New York City's green markets, definitely check out their website, www.grownyc.org. For the latest and greatest in the moment, you can find them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, whatever your preferred social media platform. Green Market is there with amazing pictures and up-to-the-moment updates on what's great at the markets. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll be back in touch next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.